So this evening, uh, John Mark's going to join me. We're going to sit up here because, and I'm very uncomfortable with it, but they said that's the only way the camera can do its thing. So it's AJ's fault, Kelsey, it's Dana, Stu, and AJ's fault that we're sitting eight inches above the ground. So would you forgive us? Uh, but I've asked John Mark to come and just converse with me a little bit around the journey towards practicing the way and specifically with the Shabbat, the, the Sabbath, how he and his family landed at that and how we can apply it as a community. John Mark, you come and join me, please. Now, come on, if we applaud, we applaud properly. You know what I'm saying? Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, so right off the bat, Dana spoke about... I know you are actually. Yeah, it's not a great setup. For... Not a great setup, no. But Dana spoke about confession, so I would like you to tell the community how your surf session went yesterday morning. Very badly. What? Yeah, that's like a that's a sin here. Is that correct? That's a sin. Yeah. To if you have a bad worship set, sin. it's public even confession. If you're new, even if you're new to it, it's public confession. That's yeah. why I don't. The only time I go into the water is with a nine-foot log. Because that way it's impossible to embat. Well, it may not be impossible. <laughs> Stuart, would you keep quiet and praise the Lord, please? All I know is Stu and I were out there surfing, and you were sitting in your lawn chair. I was. So what's uh, the confession here? To surf badly or to not surf at all? I, I don't know. John Mark, some of us are given to a life of prayer. <laughs> so it is a great opportunity to just welcome John Mark Tammy. Um, Jude, Mo, and Sunday to our community. Um, I had the privilege, Meryl and I did, meeting you when you were 30, 12 years ago. Yeah. Not that I'm saying how old you are, but it was 12 <laughs> years ago. And um, it's been an incredible journey. John Mark, I, how I many wanna... years away from the lawn chair am I? Oh, That's dude. The... <laughs> Three. <laughs> Culture of honor, sorry. <laughs> I went for a run this morning. You went one for one, I'm sure. No, it's the Sabbath. Ah, oh, right. Mm. <laughs> Legalism. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I just said I didn't. <laughs> All right. So you started preaching at 20. Why? That's a great question. Why did I start preaching? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I started preaching at 17. Right, and so. my first attempt was starting a Bible study. And uh, on night one, it was my girlfriend and my best friend. It's revival. Yeah, it was it's like a, the Trinity. It it's all three. God. And on the second week, it was my girlfriend. Oh, so there's hope for and all I of us. Thought, Austin, I, there's I hope think for I'm onto something here. I think maybe I'm discovering my calling in life. You know? Yeah. But then your dad planted a church in Portland, and uh, you got into the cycle of preaching, and then mm -hmm. became, I think, the primary teacher in that. Context. Tell us a little bit about that story, because I'm not sure many people know the context because I'm getting, in a moment, I want to get to how you stepped into that world, but give us a window of your world prior to that world. Uh, yeah, I grew up, my dad was a pastor, he's an amazing guy, and uh, vowed I would never become a pastor, not for antagonistic reasons, just I saw him... What did you want to do? I wanted to... Rockstar? Yes. All right. No, that's true, that's what I wanted <laughs> I to be. I know, yes. I know. They think I'm joking, but yeah. it's actually the truth. Um, so, I... I, I had no interest in pastoring. I had deep love for God. 
Um, so it wasn't like an anti-God or anti-church thing. I just had no inclination toward it. And then when I was my son's age, when I was a junior in high school, or would have been right after my sophomore year, my dad went and worked for a nonprofit, Christian nonprofit for five years. And for the first time, you know, when your dad's the pastor, you kind of have to go to his church, whether you want to or not. And uh, My the, son's not here tonight. He's not here. No, he... Um does not want to be here. For the first time ever, I could go to church where I wanted, and uh, we were at a church that I was just incredibly dissatisfied with. I literally walked out of the youth group once. I was so angry about it, uh, which says as much about me as it does about the youth group. But uh, I heard about this church plant, and I grew up in quite large churches that were very much more formal, and, uh, and so this I'd never been a part of anything like this. And I remember walking in the first Sunday, they just started, there were maybe 40 or 50 people, and it was laid back. This was the late 90s, and I'd never seen a pastor in sandals and just wearing shorts and just talking about Jesus and opening the Bible. And it was revolutionary for me. It's my first experience of church planning, first experience of smaller communities, and it just lit something in me. And very long story short, I felt that thing that I vowed to God I would never do was the thing that I was meant to do, at least for part. How old were you and Tammy when you met each other? You 17 and 19, is that right? We're a year and a half apart. You were 16? Yes. It's a little terrifying because our son is the age we were when we fell in love. <laughs> that's, that's quite terrifying. So Jude, you never know. And we met at church, you never know. Tonight could be your night. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we just had our 20th wedding anniversary uh, in February. So, what's that? Like I said, our 20, we just, wait, really, was it? (laughs) Shoot. We just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. That's right. Help us, Tammy. All right, so you started teaching in your pop's church, and it grew really quickly. I want you to walk us through a little bit of your own journey of a church that was going really well and by all outward standards, you should have been incredibly satisfied with it, but you weren't. Why? Um, You know, I think for most of us, the journey into reality, into growth is pain, you know, and at some point, the pain of your life, you just, you can't deny it anymore or run from it or self-medicate. You just have to face it and go through it. And, you know, it started, I think, with personal pain. Just, um, I, to, to put this very bluntly, like anybody do the Myers-Briggs personality? Any, yeah, okay, so. They all do. No, the, I don't. So, yes. Um, so some of you know, that's just one way of thinking about the human personhood. It's not chapter and verse, not even scientifically that accurate, but it's somewhat helpful. So my, you know, if you like Google your Myers-Briggs personality type and then you can Google like a famous movie like Star Wars or Harry Potter or whatever, I am always, and pick your movie of choice, I am the arch villain in every single one. So in Star Wars, I'm not even Darth Vader. He comes around at the end. He kind of had a troubled childhood. I'm like, I'm Emperor Palpatine, you know? I'm he who must not be named and everything. (laughs) I am the arch, I am the evil genius. And that is a way of saying, I am not a naturally nice or happy person. I'm just not. Um, Even with Jesus, I'm really struggling to be a nice and happy person. And I had massive struggles early on through kind of late adolescence and early adulthood with um, mental illness, not mental illness is too strong of a word, but with quite extreme anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. 
So I quickly just became, I'm the kind of person who is not just okay without God. And I think none of us are, but some of us have to face that reality sooner rather than later. And I had this interesting experience in my own discipleship to Jesus, again, growing up in a wonderful home and great churches, where my sense of formation is not linear, like our growth into maturity is not like up and to the right. But there is hopefully a sense of forward movement, like Paul full on uses the word progress in his letter to Timothy, like see to it that you are making progress. And he means in your growth and maturity toward Christ-likeness. And I had this sense of progress year over year, through high school, through college, through my early 20s. And then I had this sense of like hitting a plateau the moment my discipleship to Jesus began to hit on whatever you want to call them, deep, deeply ingrained habits of sin in my body, at some mysterious level in my genetic wiring, in my ancestry, and the culture around me. It was really helpful in the early stages of my discipleship. And the church models I were a part of were really helpful in my early stages of discipleship. But the moment I hit that kind of deeper stuff, and I'm not talking about like how to become a saint, I'm talking about how to just become a nice, happy person. The moment it hit that deeper stuff, it was just like banging my head against a wall. And then as the pressures of marriage at an early age, and we had our share of struggles, and then children, and then pastoring a very large church, and just the demands of, somehow we've turned adult into a verb, of adulting, um, I began to weigh on me, I felt that not only was I not progressing, now I was regressing. If you just take the fruit of the Spirit as some kind of a metric for success in your life and just ask yourself very simply, almost like a spiritual 360 review once a year, am I becoming more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more gentle, more good, more faithful, and more self-disciplined? Year over year, I think I was becoming more angry and impatient and anxious and easily irritated and melancholy and so on and so forth. And there was just this moment I, that I had to face the reality that something about the way I was following Jesus was not producing a high level of transformation in me. And it wasn't necessarily a heart issue. I mean, everything's a heart issue, but it's not that I didn't want to change. I deeply did. I deeply wanted to be like Jesus. But Bible study, church, and willpower was no longer an effective formula for the kinds of things I was dealing with. And it wasn't that I wasn't trying to change. If anything, I was trying too hard. It's that I did not know how to change. And that's where I think Willard about that point came into my life and gave me a theology and a psychology of the growth and expansion of the human soul, of how we become the kinds of people for whom living the New Testament, for whom living Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is is within the paradigm of possibility in our lifetimes, you know? That's outstanding. John Mark, a personal question, although I know the answer. Your first book, the title came from an encounter at a restaurant, if I have the story right, with Hope. Am I right? Uh, it was, uh, I think it was a church, actually, okay. but yeah. Tell us, give us a little window into that soul, because it was soon after that that you began to explore the possibility of the urban core of Portland and starting Bridgetown. So you're asking about that or? Yes, I'm asking about Hope. About that, that actual woman named Hope? Yeah, and that encounter, which, and then why you left the east side and oh, went to yeah. Bridgetown. Um, 
Let me see. Uh, that was many years ago. Yeah, I was in the thick of like a very dark season of depression, like really bad. And uh, we had started the church at that point, and I was preaching. And it's really weird to be up on a stage preaching when you are utterly miserable. And uh, and you know, there's a whole there's a whole line in the New Testament about in season and out out of season. You don't get the luxury of doing this when you're in the mood for it or when you feel, feel spirit-filled. You know, I had a quite nice day. I had a really hard week. I had a nice day, and at the very end of the Sabbath, we had a family argument. And so I'm walking into church with, you're supposed to interview me about the Sabbath, how it's transformed <laughs> our family life. And we just had a family, not, not, a, not a like knockout, drag down, there's no blood involved, but we okay. just had a family fight. And that's the, I'm thinking, Lord have mercy. I have no business being anywhere on a microphone tonight, but you don't get that luxury, yeah. you know? And uh, so I was in the midst of preaching and teaching and pastoring and utterly miserable, could barely get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, and I just had this bizarre experience where this young 20-something girl I'd never seen before, never see, saw after, came up to me and um, just introduced herself and said, my name is Hope. And I just had this kind of out-of-body experience where I felt like the spirit of Jesus was inviting me to hope in him again in the press and mess of everything, you know? So it was a number of years later from that that I stepped down from leading kind of a very large network of churches to pastor a much smaller, poorer church in a much more difficult part of the world in the urban core of Portland. And that was, I think, connected in the sense of I just, you know, you, you re some of you I'm sure are getting there at this point, it's a really young room. So some of you have been there for a long time, some of you are just now getting there, some of you don't even wanna know that you'll get there eventually, but there comes a point in time when you face what some developmental psychologists call a crisis of limitation. You begin to realize that like you're mortal and you're finite and you break much more easily than you thought you did and you can't do it all, you can't be it all, and you can't, you know, we live in this culture that just says, you can do anything you put your mind to, you can be anything, and it's just utter ridiculous PR from multi-global corporations who basically want us to buy another Peloton bike. It is not truth, um, but we're inundated. It is literally the cultural messaging that we swim in, and very powerful economic and spiritual forces that I think are empowered by dark spiritual energies have a vested interest in us believing that we can break our limitations. There's a whole reading of Adam and Eve in the garden that and this may or may not be the right reading, but one whole reading of that story is that the temptation was a temptation to transgress their human limitations. That God had given them this beautiful space where they were the image bearers of God, ruling on behalf of God, under God and over the world. And that wasn't enough. They had to transgress that and go beyond that. So one way of understanding sin, it's at its root, it's an attempt to transgress our limitations. Which eventually, if you follow that rabbit trail, you get to Sabbath, you get to all rule of life, you get to all sorts of things. But at some point in life, you hit this moment where you realize, I'm human, I'm mortal, I'm going to die. And life is way shorter than I thought it was. And you have to make very hard decisions about how you're going to live. This goes to the ancient Christian practice that has been almost entirely lost in the modern church of contemplating your death on a daily basis. You know, St. Benedict and arguably one of the most influential documents for sure of Western civilization and definitely in the history of the church, the rule of St. Benedict in the sixth century said, always keep your death before your mind. 
And he did not mean that in a morbid or masochistic way. In fact, I just, I'm finishing that book you gave me. I was finishing this afternoon, The Comfort Crisis, secular book. But he writes about all the data that says people that contemplate their death are happier, they're more grateful, they're more energized. Like all this positive data. So you must must think about your death a lot, you know? I'm so happy. But um, you have to confront that. Like those weird things. I actually pray with a fake skull right in front of my prayer spot at the house, which is, really? I have a great therapist if, that, if that's encouraging to you at really? all. Really? Now we all have to get skulls. Now we all have to get skulls. Come wow. on, you'd like that. You'd wow. like, I'd see you with that. I can do that. And that's because... Like a tattoo. Ancient monks all prayed with a skull on their desk. Like you see ancient Christian artwork. They're praying and they're normally at a little prayer bench and normally there's a candle if they have a scrap a parchment of scripture that a scribe had done there's a parchment of scripture and then there's a skull and it wasn't like mine which is from etsy it was like <laughs> it was like a former monk in the monastery <laughs> no i'm serious and they did it not to be weird or masochistic but to put that before them to remind them of their mortality to not waste their life on trifling things so it's a little silly that i have it on my office but it's a, it's a helpful aid for me to try to remember I'm human. We all have these limitations, and, and death is the great limitation of all. So I did reach a spot where I began to bump up, in particular emotionally, to those limitations, and realizing that um, I had a certain capacity to accomplish things in my job or my work, but I had to live at a lower capacity if I stood at any chance of, of being somebody that was becoming more loving and joyful and peaceful over time. Wow, that's, that's a lot to contemplate for sure. John Mark, you planted... I, think I, I think I messed up by saying the skull thing. I'm no, so I, love, I, I love the Who's skull thing. Who's the weird guy with the skull in his, yes. We're all going to walk around with skull tattoos, I think, right now. Wendy Pierce, what do you think, a skull tattoo? All right, come on, girl. So fast Stew. forward a little bit. So you've Skull planted... tattoos after. Which arm am I having it on? <laughs> so, so fast forward a little bit because I want to get, thank you, that's sublime and incredibly helpful. And thanks for being honest about the family thingy that happened this evening. Yeah. It's very empowering actually. Meryl and I didn't have one tonight. Um, <laughs> it happens sometimes, you know what I'm saying? Nor did you go surfing yesterday. I didn't, mm. I didn't. <laughs> I'm going to be in the water tomorrow morning. <laughs> And I'm going to tell everyone I didn't see you there. You know what I'm saying? Um, So fast forward a little bit. You plant Bridgetown, great community from its inception. Uh, The dream that you had for that community and then parachute in the spiritual disciplines. How did you guys get to a place where, wow, there is a different way of doing church, our Christian transformation? Well, I mean, it's all kind of the same story. So I hit this point in my own life, and I'd, I'd say maybe my late 20s, early 30s, where I just was hitting my head against a concrete wall. I was not becoming more like Christ year over year. And at this point, and I'm dating myself here, but now I have an iPhone, which I grew up without one, and I'm beginning to realize this thing is destroying any sense of prayer life that I have. And, uh, and then social media comes, and that's destroying any sense of like reality-based perception of the world and emotional health that I had to begin with. And um, what I began to realize was that my personal problem was also a pastoral problem, that tragically my church was full of people like me, not my church like in an ownership sense, but yeah, yeah. I was not the outlier. And you know, the enemy is always just working to 
deform ideas in our mind because we all live from ideas. And so somehow, and the tragedy is most of the most deceptive and destructive ideas that we're all living by are subconscious, not conscious. And if we were to draw them up and articulate them, we'd say that's foolishness, but yet we're living from these. So there's a Catholic theologian that writes about three levels of belief. There's public belief, which is what you say you believe. This is Harvey Weinstein a couple of four weeks before he was outed with the women's liberation pen, you know. Then there's private belief, which is what you think you believe. Then there's your core belief, which is what you actually believe, but don't normally realize it until you face suffering or you lose what you care about. So we might say, hey, I don't believe that I'm getting my identity from my work until we're laid off and unemployed and can't get a new job. And then we realize whether or not that belief was true or not. We might say, I'm content in Jesus until our girlfriend breaks up with us and we thought we were going to get married and now we're not. We might say that we really are surrendered to whatever God has for us until our life goes a certain way and it's deeply discouraging and disheartening and then we're miserable. We're like, oh, maybe I wasn't actually surrendered to whatever Jesus had for us. So um, as we kind of moved toward this, I realized that I had somehow adopted this subconscious belief that I would sacrifice my own emotional health for the good of the church. I had somehow misinterpreted Jesus' whole like, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me to be work stupid hours and be emotionally miserable so that other people can grow into Christ-likeness. And said like that, that's ridiculous. And it wasn't conscious, it was unconscious. And so once that became conscious, I realized I had to make a change. But then I realized, so, so that took me down this like kind of five-year reading research project um, at an intellectual level of theology, psychology, ancient Christian spirituality, tons of developmental psychology, trauma-informed stuff, all of neuroscience, um, and then at a personal level into therapy, spiritual direction, mentorship, deep community, confession of sin, just trying to get unstuck in my formation because I was realizing something about the way I was following Jesus was not producing the life in me that Jesus seemed to assume was what he was offering to his followers. So either the problem was with Jesus or it was with me, and I was betting that it was more likely to be with me. And as I began to learn over these few years, and Willard was kind of like my gateway drug into all of this world, um, as I began to learn about the growth and maturity and how the human soul is built and how it grows, first off, about 80% of it was new information to me. And that was humbling. I'd been through Bible college, I'd been through seminary, I was leading a very large church, and if you had asked me, how does a human soul change? You just become a brand new follower of Jesus, you're baptized into the waters, you come up out, you're given Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. How do you become that kind of a person that can take Jesus' command, do not worry, and can, and can go not worry that week? That can take his command, love your enemy, and you can walk out the door and pray for those who persecute you. How do you become that kind of a person? That is one of the most important questions any of you will ever ask. And really what you're asking is what's your working theory of change? Um, and everybody has a working theory of change. Everybody has some kind of a theory of how we're gonna become those kinds of people. The problem is that most of our working theories of change don't work. <laughs> and most of them are unconscious, not conscious. They're haphazard, not very intentional, and they're often ineffective rather than deeply congruent with how God wired the human soul to grow. So I kind of went into this whole world, learned 
you know, and the first thing you learn is not how much you know, but how much you don't know. Most of it's an unlearning before it's a learning. And you really quickly face the complexity of the human soul. Human souls are not widgets. It's not like if you follow this formula, boom, six months later, you're living the Sermon on the Mount. The human soul is way too, or if it is, I have not figured out what that formula is. Um, but when I do, I'll have a great website. And for $39.99 a month, I would, be, I would be happy to help you do that. Um, the human soul is so, so too complex and fascinating and literary and beautiful for that. But I began to realize there are certain key components to human growth and change, one of which is practice or discipline, community is another, and there are many more. And I began to realize that the way that our church, which was kind of a typical American church, Sunday-centric, big sermon in the middle of it, the way it was set up, it was intentionally not set up to produce a high level of transformation in its people. So the crisis of discipleship that is across the evangelical Protestant church in America, in my opinion, I don't want to say like sound angsty, but in my opinion, it is not a, it is not a bug, it is a feature of the system of how the church is set up. Uh, what's happening in the church is exactly what you would expect. The low level of discipleship, low level of transformation, the widespread generation of deconstruction happening amongst millennials, all of this is exactly what you would expect if a church was actually set up not for discipleship, community, and transformation, but for other things. So I began to realize our church had to pretty radically change if we were ever even going to try to create an environment not an assembly line for widgets, but an environment where people, if they want to, can say yes to Jesus' invitations to change. Let's jump into the Sabbath because that's the first of your practicing the way. Yeah. Drive the idea for us a little bit and then tell us what your family does. And, I mean, you've just moved down, the community that you had Sabbath with in Portland. Yeah. So let me back up a little bit. So we came up with a working theory of change. It took us about five years. It's not chapter and verse, it's in pencil. But our like best attempt to kind of diagram out, this is how we think a church and therefore a community of followers of Jesus would grow and mature into Christlikeness. And before we rolled it out in our church, it was gonna require not like a major overhaul, but a pretty significant re-architecture of our church. I ran it by a bunch of people much smarter than me. Uh, and just to get their constructive criticism. And one of the first people I ran it by was this psychologist, PhD, brilliant man in his 70s, been doing this for many, many, many years, was a pastor forever ago. And I ran the whole thing by him, and he had some you know, helpful tips and techniques and confirmed and corrected a couple things. But then basically he just said one thing. He said, it's all pretty great. This would be amazing. And then he said, the number one problem you will face is time. And he said, the vast majority of people are just too busy to have any meaningful spiritual life at all and to mature into the kind of people they say they want to be. And he said that after 50 years of working as a therapist with all sorts of people from all walks of life, and in his mind, the major thing keeping people from maturity was busyness. They're just too tired, too busy, and too distracted to have any meaningful life with God and any significant growth into Christlikeness. So to your Sabbath question, um, I think for most people in our modern world, this is probably not true if you were to you know, rewind 600 years to 
you know, an agrarian village somewhere. But in our world of noise and airplanes overhead and Wi-Fi and all the things, most, for most of us, any significant spiritual journey or any significant step forward in our formation must begin with rest. So Dallas Willard's TA, James Bryan Smith, who's a professor in Kansas now, who was the one that Willard commissioned to write what he called a curriculum for Christlikeness. Only two people I know that have tried to write it. It's us, what we're doing, we're just starting, and he's done it. And he's an amazing man and a friend. In his little, he has like a 32 kind of week curriculum. Week one, your practice is just to sleep eight hours a night. Like that's your spiritual practice. Just to sleep. You've got that practice. That's it. Number two. <laughs> and, and, he, and I was chatting him about it and he said, all of these people find it to be like one of the most transformative spiritual experiences of their life. <laughs> and you mentioned that story last week about Meryl and the girl that was living with you. You know, same type, same, goes to the same thing. And so I think um, the spiritual journey must begin with rest. And even, you know, the language of spiritual disciplines, which obviously I'm a fan of, not a critic of, but we very intentionally don't call them spiritual disciplines when we talk about the exact same thing. Not because that's bad language at all, but because it's, there's ambiguity biblically. We were it. thinking of changing it. No, actually. no, it's okay. Don't change no, it. No, we were I was like, trying to how to say, not the perfect I was word. trying to figure out how to say this without sounding like I'm criticizing the name of the beautiful series that we're doing, because I'm not. I'm genuinely not. It's the, a great word, actually. It's a great. The problem, the problem with it is that most people in our world misunderstand what that word spiritual means. And so, for example, you know, you, most of you, I'm sure, know this, but there is no word for spiritual in the Hebrew language. So three-quarters of your Bible doesn't talk about spirituality in the sense of that actual word. And in the New Testament, it's barely at all used by Jesus. It's mostly used by Paul, and Paul doesn't mean what most of us mean by it. What Paul means is animated or energized by the Spirit of God. So in Paul's mind, all people are not spiritual, or some people are spiritual but with dark, evil spirits. Um, Paul writes about a spiritual body, and he doesn't mean like a non-material body. He means a body in Corinthians 15 that is animated by the Spirit of God, that is literally powered by the Spirit of Jesus. So, um, you know, the downside, nothing wrong with the language of spiritual disciplines, but a lot of people's approach to discipleship to Jesus is so either hypercognitive or hyper-emotional, it's not embodied. It's not habituated. What is happening with the poor children? <laughs> we, we, we only lose one a week. If we lose one, pff, it's a great week. Don't worry. Wow. Lord, this is not my grandkids. Lord have mercy. That's great. Um, and so in, my point is, that child has a body. That child is rev it's either in great pain or reveling in the joy of its body. I'm not sure. But either way, it proves the point. That child doesn't, I mean, theologically, you don't have a body, you are a body. Your body is a part of who you are. And there's this ancient kind of thread from Platonism to Gnosticism to evangelical Cartesian enlightenment thinking that wants to divorce the mind or the heart from the body. And nothing could be less biblical, less Jesus-y. You are in it. We live in an embodied faith, an embodied spirituality, a material spirituality. And so any serious discipleship to Jesus must take your body just as seriously as it does your mind. And often I think we approach formation just with the mind or just with the heart when we need to just start by taking a nap. 
or, or sleeping in or you know drinking more water or going for a nice walk and watching the sunset surfing no. or surfing yeah. or 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 sabbathing in a lawn chair that's i bless I, I that i heard the lord there, i bless that there's no was in judgment that was self-defense i just want to <laughs> clarify so um that's i'm happy to talk about sabbath and our journey into sabbath but for me I, grew, I was just exhausted at the same point when I was not growing, not maturing. If anything, I was not progressing. I was regressing. I was utterly exhausted and running. And the time off from work I had was mostly spent shopping or doing stuff online or distracting myself. It was not spent Sabbathing. And Sabbath is more than just rest. It's a kind of rest that is delight and is virtually indistinguishable from worship. And it is incredibly life-giving, but there's an emotional process to it. It doesn't feel good often on the front end, but on the back end. So um, I grew up in a church tradition where Sabbath was not even on my radar. It was a thing for like Jews back in the day. And I thought it was like part of the quote law that Christ set us free from. It was legalism, it was all these things. It was, or just mostly it was just not on my radar. I didn't have a bad view of Sabbath. I just had no view Long of Sabbath. View, yeah. And I am just old enough from an old school enough dad that Sunday when I was growing up was still like the Lord's Day. Like in our family, you know, Saturday night, there was no movie night, there was no movie allowed. And we'd get our little like, I'm dating myself so embarrassingly, but we'd get our allowance each week and we had like little envelopes to the church, like before, you know, we could give online and stuff. And we'd calculate our little, you know, tithe of 30 cents or whatever, and we'd put it in an envelope, and we'd have family devotions, and then we'd go to church the next day. And uh, that sounds idyllic, except my dad was a pastor at a mega church. We went to church four times on Sunday, and it was not Sabbath. It was a lot of things, but Sabbath it was not. Um, but I, at least I had this category for like, and I, I would not have articulated, I would have articulated it crassly, something like Sunday is God's day or something like that. But I had a little bit of that. But as I got older and became an adult and got an iPhone and the world became increasingly secular, that was just swallowed up. And Sunday just became a day when you do your stuff and then you go to church too. And so uh, as I began to rediscover this ancient practice of Sabbath, uh, like fasting and like others, but probably more than any other practice, it was like a before after moment in my spiritual journey. It just like I can literally timestamp and it didn't solve all my problems, and we still get in fights, even on the Sabbath, and I'm still very much a work in progress. But it was a before-after moment for me, and then eventually over many years for our family, and for our kids, and for our community. Describe your Sabbath, if you don't mind. Well, and we just So you, you fight at the end. Yes, we always end you get it with there? a very emotional fight right before going to church on the week when I'm supposed to talk about Sabbath. Okay, yeah, we that's got That's kind them. of our, that's how we do things in our family. <laughs> Dane and Stu as well. Yeah, any, any, any other takers? Great, awesome. So this is my people. I need to find a different church. Um, <laughs> uh, so we start at, uh, so a couple things that have been amazing for us. Um, one is giving it a full 24 hours. And there is just something about that. You know, it's like, um, don't, you need to start where you are. So if Sabbath is not a part of your life and that's way too much, then maybe start with two hours, you know. Um, take Sunday nights after church and just turn your phone off and go do a meal with three people. Or if you're an introvert, go watch the sunset or whatever, whatever you want to do. Just start where you are. Don't like, you don't need to jump into the deep end of the pool. But a few things that have been incredibly helpful for us, giving it a whole day because it takes your body a long time, just at a neurochemical, like at a biological level, to kind of come off of the drug, 
hurry, busyness, activity, production, to go through the inevitable emotional kind of down and then back up, and to begin to regain even an emotional capacity to just take delight in God and his world. And so a full day was amazing, starting at night, like in all the ancient kind of Sabbath traditions, it always begins at night. And so a little, that would have been normal for any ancient person and weird for us because in the Western calendar, the new day starts at 12.01 in the morning. So we think of a day as starting when we wake up in the morning. But obviously on page one of your Bible, it says there was evening and there was morning on you know day three or whatever so in both hebrew culture and in biblical theology the day starts with sundown in fact eugene peterson has this rad little rift about how in genesis 1 the day starts with sleep and the week starts with sabbath and he just writes that it was god teaching justification by grace through faith from page one of the bible like god is teaching you everything we do we do from rest from the love of god from his provision from his blessing from his care and from that place we go into our work we go into our week we go into our day so biblically the day begins you know in about 40 minutes and so um, all ancient sabbath traditions start 20 minutes before sundown with the lighting of two candles and then the third thing that was um, life-changing for us was beginning with a meal. And again, with you, very much kindred spirit around the role of the table. And for many years, that was just our family meal, which was great. And then we began to realize, again, we're stumbling our way into this. I didn't grow up in this. I wasn't mentored into any of this other than through books I found. And realizing that Sabbath and Sunday worship used to be the same thing. So we think of Sabbath as a different spiritual discipline than what you're at right now. Very few Christians ever thought that way until very, 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 very recently. By very recently, I meant like, even when Chris was a little boy, nobody would have Easy, thought about Tiger. that. No, I mean, seriously, just, just it really to the wall. wasn't until about the 1950s or 60s that people began to separate Sunday from Sabbath and then just ditch Sabbath in the American tradition. So um, we, be, we have begun rediscovering in the last few years that Sabbath is a community discipline, just like worship is a community discipline. And that it's not meaningful to put on a Bethel record or whatever's hot these days and wor worship in your room to Apple Music, that's great. But there is something categorically different when you're in a room, in a body, singing with other people in bodies to the Trinity. There is something happening here that is deeply profound. And Sabbath, a day to stop, rest, delight, and worship, is a community discipline. Now, for all the fellow introverts in the room, that doesn't mean like you have to be with people for 24 hours straight. I am most certainly not. But at some point, there should be a community feast, a community celebration. There should be laughter and dancing and singing and joy because that's what the Sabbath is. So those, those are a couple things for us. We basically begin with a, a party. We have little rituals and stuff we do, which is some of it's just stuff we do, um, that we are just trying to habituate our bodies into rest and joy. But we do a meal together, we celebrate together, we turn off our phones for a full 24 hours, we sleep, we rest, we eat lots of carbs, and it's <laughs> glorious. <laughs> and we get in fights. That's free. Because it's real life. Yeah. It's real life. None of this stuff is a silver bullet. It's all powerful. Fasting is powerful. A table with community, doing life with eight to 12 people. Isn't that like the best thing and the worst thing you've ever done in your life? Like, I mean, it is. And that's, it's, it's deep. If you are not doing life around a table with a small group of people where you know and are known, 
you are for, both missing out on so much that God has for you. You're also missing out on a lot of drama and pain and frustration, but that's actually essential to you growing into a person of love. So all of this stuff is beautiful. None of it is utopian. Sabbath is wonderful, but it's not a silver bullet, you know, and I'm living proof. I Sabbath quite well, and I'm still struggling to live as well as I Sabbath. <laughs> so John Mark Landis, um, A, generally people don't come from a Sabbath culture. Yeah. So we're going to be learning. It's going to be a journey together. Two, um, the understanding the power, and obviously a lot of single people in the room, so they yeah. don't have the family mm -hmm. Sabbath. Uh, land us exhortationally, if you don't mind, the call to the Sabbath and what you think your four videos will do to help us create cultures around the Sabbath feast. Well, I mean, yeah, the, those those short films or whatever are an attempt to give people what I wish I had 15 years ago when we started, which is just theology, practice, and working models of what this could look like, whether you're single or have little kids or teenagers or a family or no family or whatever. And, um, but I think as a general rule, just start where you are, not where you feel you should be. That's just like for all discipleship to Jesus. That's a, that's a general rule. And there's a wide spectrum of personalities. So some of you are like spiritual overachievers. So you're gonna go like, just try to live like a first century Jewish person, like on your first Sabbath. And you just need to dial it way, 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 way back. <laughs> start with maybe watching the sunset with no phone. Maybe start there, all right? And others of us or you might be so like, uh, prone in the other direction that you're never going to actually take any concrete steps that actually create resistance in your heart. And, you know, the, again, it's an embodied faith. So similar, I am the, I'm the last person that should give you a model of how to work out. But it's a basic principle of the human body that growth and health only come from resistance. Without resistance, you will never have any strength and the same is true spiritually. Without some form of resistance, and you will feel rest is an act of resistance against the cultural powers that are animated by powers and principalities of the demonic world. So when you attempt to rest, it sounds so dreamy and wonderful. Stop, rest, delight, worship a whole day just to celebrate life with God and his world and his people. It is war. It is an act of resistance against the cultural forces around you and many of the emotional undercurrents within our own body. And all of that resistance will come up. So be really gentle with yourself. Be really patient, but also persevere through it. It took us many, many years. And even and now, Sabbath, I would say nine times out of 10 is the best day of the week. But there are still bad days and we still get it wrong and those things don't go. It is still life and it's still human, but just start where you are. Take gentle but actionable steps forward. And we're all at different places where you might be, you know, it, we're all at different places. We all have different amounts of time, different emotional capacity, different levels of spiritual desire. Start where you are. Don't try to copy my life or somebody else's life. Learn, imitate, look for models, but start where you are and just whatever that next step is for you, take the next step and then the next step and the next step. You know, Willard was once asked, how do you become a saint? And uh, I was told this story by uh, another PhD professor who did his dissertation on Willard. And his theory was that if Willard had been Catholic, he would right now would be in the process of sainthood. He was like very, he's like, I think Willard was what Catholics would call a saint. 
and uh, he'd spent time with him, and everybody has ever spent time with him. You know, I was just with one John Orberg, who was mentored by him for 20-something years, and he said his life was even more beautiful. He said he was the smartest person I've ever known, and John has a PhD, he's quite bright, but he said his life was even more beautiful than his mind. And he was just known for being extraordinarily joyful and singing at all hours of the day and all of beekeeping, all of these things. And, um, but uh, Willard was asked, how do you become a saint? And he just thought about it for a minute and he said, by doing the next right thing. And I think that is such a humble, honest, gracious way to think about following Jesus. What's the next right thing? for you and your journey and your life and your community, your state, your moment of development, just do the next right thing. And Fabulous. for many of you, the next right thing is to go get some sleep and rest. Remain here for a moment, John Mark. Tammy, would you come up here a second, please? Come stand close. So, the Sabbath for you. What did it do for you? How have you discovered some of the appeal and the wonder that's written in the text and practiced in your life? Mm. Well, I didn't know I was going to be up here. There, you never do. <laughs> I would say um, John Mark and I are opposites, so that was always like a tension in our home he's very you know rules and he likes order and he likes the disciplines he like he lives a very disciplined life and i think because we got married young and because i'm his opposite <laughs> um i am like a high p on the myers-briggs i'm like super laid back and flexible and think of you know rules more like suggestions and so <laughs> so for many years it was a real source of like contention in our home so he would be like put your phone away and I'd be like don't tell me what to do don't tell me what to do and so I would just be like oh, okay, well I'll probably do it for a little bit and then I might like check it a little bit later and then I might you know it was just like I was always kind of like pushing the I don't know. I, I just, I never wanted to follow the rules because they were rules. And I felt like there were so many rules. I just didn't want to be constricted by legalism or by, you know, whatever. And it was actually, this is funny to admit, but I was reading one of his books where he explained the theology behind <laughs> it. And he wasn't actually telling me in like, a, you know, it wasn't I'm a, a I'm a better writer than husband. No, but it just, it didn't have the same tone. I'm not that great I of a writer. Tell, I could tell that he was just, you know, he was, making a, he was explaining. And I realized I should try this. I had seen, I had seen honestly how it had really, like the disciplines transformed John Mark. He went from being very, um, you know, it, it was like I saw how it softened him. I saw how he was becoming more like Jesus and not overnight and not perfectly, but it was compelling. I mean, it was compelling enough for me to say, well, maybe I should try, like, let me just try it. But I'm gonna try it without, you know, committing to him a ton. I'm going to commit to Jesus. I'm going to try it. So it wasn't like I was following his rules. I was like trying it based on what I thought, you know, and then eventually it became, it actually became very, it's getting a little too real. Tonight. Yeah. Then, 
I think we're going to be teaching on marriage next yeah. Sunday. I'm loving it. We'll but but I think the I think the reason I say that is to say that um, if you are more laid back, flexible, adaptable, good natured, yeah, you know, just high value, kind, for good fun, looking, witty. You know, but, and it doesn't, and you think, oh, the discipline of Sabbath, like all these rules or something. That's not what it's for. Like, I think we always ask ourselves the question, is it rest and is it worship? Is it life-giving? So what's life-giving for him may be different, like for me, but there are moments of like deep union, like with him and I and with our kids and with our, our people and with Jesus. And then there are deep moments of like life-giving um, space for me to do what is life-giving for me with Jesus. So like, I love to like sit outside and I like, I'm like totally like an old lady like this, but I like love birds and nature and bugs and lizards. And I like will watch them and just like flowers and, and like just want to discover like I'm curious about them. And normally I'm too busy to sit and watch them. But I like sat and watched like this little lizard like eat stuff today. He was like hunting. And then it was cool, and I just thought that was cool, and I saw a hummingbird land. And, like, normally you're too busy for that, you know? And I just was like, man, Lord, like, what is it you want to teach me through just, like, the nature that I see today? Like, what are the, what, what are you up to, like, around here, like, around my chair? And I would have missed it if I had my phone on. I just would have. I would have been texting or whatever. And I think that Sabbath recalibrates you. That's like what I would say is it's a day for me. I look forward to Sabbath because honestly, the discipline of Sabbath is good for my personality. I don't like the disciplines in the sense of I don't like rules, but they're good for me. And every time I'm actually do disciplines, I'm grateful because I'm healthier. Like if I wasn't disciplined, I would be sicker, not like not as sharp, all the things, you know, it's like disciplines are healthy. So when you, so I guess I would just say it recalibrates you. There's a lot of work that you do to prepare for Sabbath so that you can rest. And that's like our, the day before, you know, our evening where we start Sabbath is crazy. It's like, you know, cleaning the house, doing all your texts, doing all the work to, so that you can turn your phone off and just be. And I think sometimes in that, like, you know, like if you're an artist or something, people say boredom is one of the greatest creative, like, catalysts. Like, you know, you've got to be bored before you can be creative a little bit sometimes. Sometimes before you can be filled with the, like, uh, emotional feeling of meeting with Jesus, of being, like, filled with his kindness, like, recognizing his presence, you almost have to, like, detox and just, like, be bored for a little bit like almost like just like rest or crash or whatever and so I feel like Sabbath recalibrates it like recalibrates me I take a nap I have hours in the day to sit go on a walk if I want to have a cup of coffee or boba tea with a girlfriend um, connect with John Mark maybe have a good like I buy like 
dessert. I have like dessert all day long with my kids and we're like eating and there's no shame. It's like, you know, it's just how we roll. But so I feel like there are these things, it's like pleasure stacking. You know, you like figure out the things that are life-giving. You make preparation for those things, snacks, rest, whatever, art, you know. Um, And then, and time with Jesus to be with him. And I always feel like, oh, there you are. And then it's kind of like, oh, there I am. Like, uh, you know, like when you meet Jesus and he meets, like I literally had this moment this morning and it was so, I had the sweetest morning with Jesus. And I, it was like, I'd been, had a hard week and it was just like emotional and it was just off. And it was like, I was looking at this, I was watching the lizard hunt and then I was like reading my Bible and I thought, oh, I feel my soul coming back. Like, there I am. I'm happier than I've been. Oh, this feels more like how I normally am. And then I kind of wanted to sing and then I was like kind of singing and then I was getting ready and like my whole, I'm not actually exaggerating, my sink nozzle came completely off of the sink and it was like a, a geyser in my whole bathroom. The whole bathroom was like filled with water and my whole outfit and hair got completely drenched and I looked like it was like it was like from a movie and it was exactly like what John Mark just said though about how like I not that the devil was in my uh you know sink but but I just maybe the lizard was but uh (laughs) but there are these moments I I had the capacity to literally like I, I had to get down on the ground and turn off the water and I started laughing because I literally thought of all the days this could happen. Today's the day I actually have time to clean it up. And so I was like, well, I can either be in a horrible mood or I can spend the next hour and a half cleaning up this standing water in my bathroom. And so I did. I cleaned it up. But I just thought this is, I have the emotional capacity because of my quiet time to not let this ruin my day. And that doesn't happen on a day you're busy and where you have no, you know, bandwidth or, you know, so, so I love Sabbath. Do it, whatever, whether you're laid back or you're, you know, disciplined, do it, just try it, you know, and yeah, and, and I mean, and make room for each other and be creative and, but Jesus like meets you where you're at. He knows how he made you. So try to think creatively. How would I meet with God? Where do I sense him? And try to do that thing. Make space for it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Go ahead, Tim, if you don't mind.